So welcome everybody to Adventures in Angular and today I'm not Aaron Frost, I'm Shai Resnick and I'm hosting uh, because Aaron is driving to RxJS Live which is in Vegas and I'm so envious. But anyway, today we have a great, great episode. But first let's introduce the panelists. First of all, we have Jennifer Wadella. What's up, Jennifer? Oi! I'm not Aaron. Oi! <laughs> <laughs> she should be it. filling in uh, <laughs> for Aaron from Frosty with the oys. And, okay, so. Okay, and, and uh, give just uh, one sentence. Are you okay? Are you fine? Are you, everything is great? Did you do a conference, like two conferences last week or something? Oh, yeah. Just got back from uh, NGDE in Berlin. It was their first year as an event, and it was absolutely hands down a fantastic conference they did such an amazing job wow yeah yeah I'm, I'm I'm in my break this year so I'm so envious all year long but next year I hope it will change and also we have Brian love what's up Brian what's up how's it going good 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 and <laughs> are you visiting any conferences this year or have you got them back from one I just uh, went to Angular Denver Well, I guess it wasn't just, it was about a month and a half or two months ago. And then my wife and I kind of are taking a break and we're moving from Denver to Portland. And we thought, why not take a couple of months and travel around Europe? So I was just in Norway for two weeks and now we're in Scotland. <gasps> so the boys are, are very, very timely. Uh, so just, it's been a fantastic journey. So it's been really fun. Done any scotch tasting yet? I have not, but I'll tell you what, the scotch here is quite delicious and a lot cheaper than anywhere else I've seen. A lot of oys. You should visit Israel. You, you will hear a lot of oy vase. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, but <laughs> ping me when you do that. And today we have a special guest, like one of the people that I love to hug when I see him. And he doesn't love it when I hug him the same as me. <laughs> so <laughs> we have Victor Sefkin, formerly from the Angular team and uh, currently uh, the founder of, uh, co-founder of Narwhal. And today we're talking about, about a lot about monorepos. So Victor, how are you? Introduce yourself to the like two people who don't know you. Uh, All right, cool. Hi, everyone. That's Victor. So I used to be on the Angular team at Google. And almost three years ago, Jeff Cross, the guy with a beard on the Angular team, and I left the Angular team. To start Narwhal and it's been fun right we uh, started doing consulting work uh, like angular lead consulting work and these days we still do that but we also focus on building tools for monorepos and helping folks use monorepos effectively nice this episode is sponsored by sentry.io recently i came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps then i asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. So it's a big change. So when did you do the, the change from... Uh... 
we still help with front-end development and with Angular development in particular. It's just the focus, the sweet spot, right, for us. Changed maybe about a year ago because a few months in, right, after we left Google, we thought about, hey, we need to build some tooling for monorepos because we keep helping people do the same stuff, right? So we put it together. And then slowly over time, the percentage of clients that we work with who needed help with the monorepo stuff, not with the tooling itself, the tooling is straightforward, but more like if you want to use it effectively, figure out how to organize your dev workflow if you have a bunch of teams, you know, stuff like that. And the percentage of clients like that slowly grew from like a little bit to now, like almost everyone. Well, wow, that's really cool. So you came to consult about like front end and then you got a lot of, uh, hey, we need help with the monorepos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, partially it's because we have the expertise coming from uh, Google where this is just the way you do stuff, right? <laughs> and so it's easier for us to say, hey, we can help you. And very few people on the market can sort of provide the same type of expertise. So it's a lot easier for us to differentiate. We're still great Angular folks, right? And we have great React folks and a lot of other technology experts, right? But for some reason, almost no consulting shops do Monorepo support right now, right? So we are like almost the only one. And so it's, it's great for us. Last year, I, um, I started hearing more and more lectures and like talks and blog posts okay. and all that stuff about Monorepos and Lerna and, and a lot of that yeah. stuff. So can you give like a short intro to like what's a Monorepo and why would you need one and all that? Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, Monorepo style development is, uh, is a way to develop code where you have multiple projects, usually built by different teams and of different types, developed in the same repository. So that's a very high-level overview. And if you just follow this overview, almost anything can be a Monorepo. I can just throw two projects side by side, develop them independently, and boom, I'm in a Monorepo, right? And technically, you in the same repo, right? But it's not what companies like Google, Facebook, Uber, and others mean when they say Monorepo. What they mean is tooling that allow you to manage the, those projects in a repo, right? That graph of dependencies, project independencies in all sorts of ways effectively. So once you have the tooling, a lot more becomes accessible, right? Suddenly you can do a lot more interesting stuff, a lot more effectively, and you see the benefits, right? So the tooling is important, right? And the things you get once you have the right tooling, things like you can easily share a code between different projects. You have two different apps built by two different teams, but you use some design systems. You have a sort of component that's exactly the same from which you build those apps, right? So you want to share that uh, very easily. If you change one of those components, you actually want to check that you didn't break anyone by accident, right? Things like that. It's a lot easier to manage dependencies, right? Uh, saying like who depends on whom, you know, what are the constraints, you know, stuff like that. You have sort of one tool chain. You still can use different things. You can use Angular and React and Node and whatever you want to do. You can put C++ in there, it works. You know, you, you can do whatever you want. But there is a layer that sort of normalizes some of it such that you can, for example, if you go from a project to a project, you know how to run tests for every project, right? You can use different test runners and different technologies to do it, but there is a lot more sort of standardization at the higher level, which allows you to interact with the repo in a very effective way, which is not a nice to have. That's actually a math thing, right, for any monorepo, because the point of a monorepo is that suddenly you can share code and do all sorts of interesting things with reusing other people's work. This only works if and only if you can actually like run their projects. Because if I'm changing my design system component, right, and then suddenly your app breaks, right, I need to know how to fix it, right? If your app has very convoluted, very like artisanal setup that I'm not able to understand, well, that like I cannot really make the change to the code, right? So you have to have some uh, agreement on what commands you can run, even though the implementation can be different for different technologies and different frameworks, there is some sort of way for me to know how to play with your code, right? 
and that provides you know enhanced dev mobility, lots of other nice nice things. So those are the things that people are usually after. Right? So usually people go in thinking, oh, I want to share a quote with Team London, right? And I'm here in Toronto. That's sort of the easy one. But then soon after they realize, oh, I can share a quote, but I can also partition my giant mega app into lots of small units with well-defined public API, right? So even though I don't share anything really, I just have a two million line app, right? Which is a sizable TypeScript app. And I can give, like, split into like 50 units with well-defined public APIs, with boundaries well-defined. And suddenly, even though you don't share anything, uh, you still get the benefits, right? You actually have a lot more structure in place that helps you to avoid the big ball of mud, so to speak, right? Where like everything gets together and no one understands anything and you have relative imports going all over the place, right? And like, you're just scared, right? That's one of the things actually I like to do with, with the folks we work is to say, hey, you have an app that you want to, you know, put in the monorepo and, you know, work with this app in the monorepo. Can you draw a diagram for this app? Like just basic architecture, whether you think the core part is, you know, what different lines of business mm-hmm. uh, are building. And once they draw it, like, okay, let's look at the source code and see if it's reflected by the source code. Like it's obviously not, right? The picture you have in mind is always, always, almost always divorced from the source code quite significant. And it's because there is no way for you to enforce it, right? You just have a giant ball of things that you right. hope roughly works like this, but in reality, it doesn't, right? There's usually some person who haven't programmed in 10 years could like draw the diagram. It's like, okay, this is roughly what it is. It has nothing to do with reality, right? So uh, having this tooling in place, A, helps you to, to see what's going on in reality and also impose some constraints that, such as you have more structure, right? That's one of the most subtle benefits of more that people don't see right away, but it, it's probably one of the more important ones. Okay, so first of all, thanks for the elaborated answer. First of all, let's say hello to Elisa Nichol, who just joined us. Hello, Elisa. Hi. So sorry for not being able to make it earlier, but it is so good to be here. Hello. So if you can leave now. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. We love you. We love you, Elisa. Thank you for joining us. So, Victor, you said something about coming from Google and having experience with a real giant like monorepo, like the, yep. the way it's supposed to be. I'm curious, while you were uh, in, on the Angular team, you and Jeff, how much of your work was regarding the, like, you know, fixing stuff on the tool chain of the monorepo, or you just got it, like, as a tool from another team and okay. just play with it and saw, like, the benefits, and then you took that knowledge on, onward? Or, or did you have anything to do with also, like, repairing stuff on the, tool chain there that got right. you involved? So both Jeff and I were on the Angular team and we, the tool chain has sort of layers, right? So there is a core layer which, which called Blaze, which are publicly known as Basil, but the same stuff. That was put in place as a replacement for like a distributed make system that they had before I joined, before Jeff joined. So that was the core of it was already there, was working, right? But the layer is sort of like any monorepo tool, including the one we hopefully will talk about in a bit, is pluggable in the sense that the monorepo tool itself allows you to coordinate different types of tasks. So, but what a task is, right? Like it allows you to coordinate, for example, what needs to be built, but how to build it and what it means to build something, right? Sort of like a plugin, you know, and in case of uh, Google, this thing was called like a rule. You write a Blaze rule and saying like, that's what it means to build a TypeScript library, right? So that stuff, we, uh, like I had a lot more experience with, right? Because it was a lot closer to the application layer, right? The core stuff was built by smart people before I joined. So I only use it as a consumer, right? As someone who uh, like experienced it, right? And say, oh, okay, like some parts are really nice, right? Some parts aren't as nice. And, uh, you know, we can talk about why, you know, uh, like private projects like that, right? 
have problems becoming widely adopted. Like I, I like to think that we took the nice parts, right? And mm-hmm. try to make them slightly more palatable, right? For the world, right? So I, it's like a web pack of monorepo tools, right? Where Closure Compiler was around, right? And it was great. But it's uh, quite a struggle to use it effectively, right? And the web pack comes like, hey, it's basically the same, but you know, it just works, right? Sort of the same mentality we try to, uh, to, uh, to embrace when implementing our tool. That's so, cool. Now that you've talked about some of the benefits, can you right. talk a little bit about some of the costs associated with using a monorepo strategy? Yeah, of course. I will be the last person to say that you need to use monorepo always. Anytime anyone says it like that, like I'm always skeptical. Like, so not a single case where it's a bad idea. It's like you cannot, <laughs> always like, and never. Like, yeah, exactly. Really it's like avoidable terms. Yeah, it, it always uh, a sign of uh, like a salesperson right? <laughs> saying something, right? I will talk about, it, but I will mix it together with a few things that are perceived costs. A lot of the pushback we get, some of it is like legitimate, saying like, okay, that's actually harder to do when I have a monorepo, right? So maybe it's a call that we don't want to take, right? And some of the things that people talk about aren't really the real costs, right? So it's a perceived uh, uh, thing. So I'm going to mix and mix them then because once you have them together, hopefully it will be easier to see what's going on. So uh, in terms of perceived costs, one of the things that everyone tells us, and I think that partially, just as a side note, that people perceive certain things as costly because the only experience they had, for example, was Learner, which is a fantastic tool. Really love Learner, but Learner does like one thing really well. And there are lots of other things that companies actually do when they build apps that Learner doesn't do intentionally. And so like, uh, if you only use Learner, you would say, okay, that's a cost, right? That's not very good, right? But it's not a property of a monorepo in general. It's just like Learner happens to be the tool that's doing it this way, right? Even though it's a fantastic tool, just as a side note. Love it, et cetera, et cetera, right? So one of the calls that uh, for some reason everyone mentions like, oh, so I heard monolith about, right? Or whatever. So the word mono, like for some reason, people conflate building things in the same place and deploying things together. If you think about the Google scale, right? Obviously not all Google apps are deployed together uh, on the same day on Friday, right? It, no, I mean, you deploy Friday whatever after. you want to deploy, right? Now that and, would be a really interesting thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exa- exactly. And even more so, if you do deployment really well, your deployment should never see the source code, right? Your CI part should build an artifact, push it somewhere, and the deployment part should just deploy an artifact without even touching the source code, right? So so it is not really true, right? And even more so, if you have this structure in place with uh, any monorepo tool, really, because you have more control with how things are organized, you can actually implement more interesting deployment strategies like micro frontends and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Are easier to build. We can talk about it more if you, if you want. When you have the tool in place, we can analyze what depends on what, you know, what needs to be redeployed and what order we're at. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, which is a perceived cost, is sort of the, uh, the ownership. It's like, oh, people are going to go and like, you know... Step on each other. And yeah, exactly. And my code is going yeah. to be completely disastrous, right? Mm-hmm. And then like Julie from that team and Hank from that team are going to just screw up. And I'm like, GitHub, lots of other tools allow you to configure ownership on performer basis. But what's more interesting that in any tool like that, you don't just configure ownership of, let's say, a folder. That this folder is mine. OPR is touching this folder need to be approved by me. You can also configure who can depend on you, which is a more interesting thing. So you can say, this is package for me and Bob, but not for Julie, right? It's just for me and Bob, right? And so Bob can depend on this package. I can depend on this package, but not Julie. It's close to impossible to do it if you do it, like, we just have multiple repos because no, nothing prevents folks from just adding stuff to package to JSON. That becomes a problem in a company if I have a, like a private package for my team that I share between my applications and then another team starts depending on it. And then I cannot figure, like their stuff goes to production 
and now I'm coupled to their stuff, right? So now suddenly we're supposed to be independent, but it's no longer the case, right? So again, uh, not really, it's a perceived cost, right? In reality, you can configure ownership just as well, or even better. Another argument is it doesn't scale. That, that is a more like a nuanced point, right? When people say, well, I'm on the repo doesn't scale, and usually they mean by scaling several things. One is, oh, it doesn't scale performance-wise. Like if I run tests, it's going to take 10 hours. Like, are you high, right? And then uh, in reality, you don't retest every, everything on every commit, right? That would be a disaster thing, obviously. So right. you only retest what needs to be retested, so any monorepo tool that dependency graph, right? Exactly. Has to allow for that. Has to analyze the source code and figure out what part to rerun. So when X does it, you know, tools like Bazel do it. Uh, learner doesn't do it. So a lot of folks could uh, only experience learner, right? They're like, well, if I run test, it runs test again every project. I'm like, yeah, that works for an open source project. If you have a large organization with like hundreds of people contributing to the same repo, it, that just won't work. A, it's slow, but also things like Team B changes something in their repo or in their app, right, and breaks it. And now, for some reason, I cannot make changes to my app, even though the two apps are independent. Like, basically, if I only change my app and no one else depends on it, I shouldn't run any tests for anyone in the whole repo, only my tests, right? That's sort of the guarantee that must be provided by the tool. So in, in terms of performance, it's kind of half true in that it can be made much faster. But at some point, even if you're, like, smart enough or whatever, right, you'll hit a point where if you make a large enough change, it's going to take a long time to rerun the tests. And if you don't have a monorepo, that cost is still there. It's just partitioned. Right. Like, you would, like in, in a period of weeks, as people start moving their projects to use a new version of the package, they'll rerun the CI, but at least it's no old ones, right? So it's not as... Yeah, that's, right? that's one of the arguments when I tried this year to move uh, one of my clients to a monorepo. There, there was a decision point there, whether to develop like you know a library, a shared library within project mm-hmm. as a separate uh, repo or doing it the same. And the, the argument was they don't have a lot of coverage like end-to-end tests and stuff like that, like right. uh, developer tests, mostly right. QA. So yeah. they said that they don't want to pay the cost, you know, now of like writing all the tests in order to right. make it work. You know, that's what... No, no, I, no I get it. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about maybe single version policy, which is this, this relates to. But oh. performance-wise, right, if you just like the raw performance of like running lots of tests at the same time, at some point you need to distribute. Right, so NX uh, soon, right? right now we do it manually for the folks we work with, and you can do it yourself, it's not super hard, right? But it will come with like distribution, for example. So you can say, I want to run the test for what's affected across the grid of machines. And you can plug in whatever, implement, like depending on what TI you use, right? You can say, oh, I use GitLab, I use this, I use Jenkins, I use that, right? And you can do it transparently such that uh, in the experiments we have right now, for a reasonable size monorepo for like a large enterprise team, you get CI, which is about five, seven minutes. Flat, right? Regardless of what you change. It just depends on how many machines you spawn, right? So, sure. uh, so at some point, you have to look into something like that. Because the, the moment your repo gets big enough, right, you have changes that will spawn hours if you don't do it on a, or if you do it on a single box. Unless you use like a, the Mac Pro, you know, the, uh, the uh, cheese grater thing, right? <laughs> With like 52 cores. So, but, uh, you know, no one does. So uh, everyone runs stuff on commodity hardware, right? So at some point, you need to, so that is true. Right. At some point, you have to look at sure. it. It's not super hard to do, but it is a true cost. You need to, you know... In, Be aware of. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And the last thing, was that most amusing thing for me when folks say, well, it doesn't scale, Git will break. And that is true, that at some point, Git will break. Right. That if you look at, for example, how Microsoft develops Windows, they have one giant Git repo with something like 3 million files, and Git is very slow for that repo, right? So they have their own driver for Git. So it, it works like Git, but it you know, kind of allows you, it's like a file system driver for Git. It's called JVFS, 
take it's actually a fantastic piece of uh, technology supported by Azure, soon be supported by GitHub for obvious reasons, right? So it, it is there. So the solution is there. But you need to reach a point where, let's be honest, most of the time, most, your repo yeah. is like a fraction of that, right? a fraction of that. Right. So Git actually scales quite well. You need to be working super hard to reach the point where Git is the bottleneck. And once you reach the point, there are tools that are, you know, support that. So mm-hmm. it's not like you, you, you're completely doomed. But it is something to consider. I think the main, the, the two real costs on a repo. So all of those things are perceived costs. They're either true, like just false, or you can work around them and they kind of, you know, work just fine. The, the real costs are, you need to change the way you develop a little bit or quite a bit, depending on what you do right now. Because of like what Shai pointed out, a single version policy, where if you make a change, every app right now will use a new version of your lib, right? And yes, there are ways to mitigate that, to have a new version, an old version of the lib, but you still have to be mindful of that. It's a lot, like it requires a bit more thinking up front with a package where just, you always use this the version you used last time. Whereas here, you need to be a bit more mindful of that. It requires a bit more effort. So things like that, a single version policy and being always at hand is more effort. And B, Trunk-based development just rocks with monorepos and long-running branches do not rock, okay? They become problematic. So I genuinely like trunk-based development. I think trunk-based development is just the way to do it anyhow, regardless of the monorepo thing. Even if you have a tiny repo, trunk, like being close to trunk ends up being better, I think, for most enterprise teams. But oh, into uh, like, fine trunk-based development. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what this, this okay, cool. term is. It's, it's like, it could be loosely defined in, in a way that you branch out from trunk and you have only short-lived branches that you must integrate into trunk, let's say within a week. So if you have a long-running feature that you're building, like a feature that takes months to span, you usually have like feature toggles, sorts of other things to turn it off until it's ready, right? But you're always very close to trunk. So you never have the branch that is, you know, mm-hmm. like you work for three months to prepare a release. No, no, no. You, you're actually always at, at hand, as close as possible. Yeah, that's a change in mentality because you need feature toggles, which are like, you know, flags, Boolean flags, yep. and, and you have sp- uh, spread like if then. What's the alternative to this? Uh, like a long running branches is usually what folks do. So right. some folks still do like release branches where they, oh, we're going to build a release in this branch, right? And they just have a long running branch where they hack on stuff, right? And they, okay. just in some organizations can last for months. The problem, of, of course, is the cost of integration. Once you have it, something for three months, integrating yeah. back can be painful. Back in, oof, yeah. yeah. And in a monorepo, it can be even more painful because monorepo promotes code sharing. Code sharing right. means that there are more integration points in theory. So if you don't do any code sharing, then it's just as, like, it's the same. But uh, the point of a monorepo is to have code sharing. So once you have a lot of code sharing, you want to make sure you don't stay stale for too long, right? Because then it will be painful to integrate back. And I think that's the biggest realistic cost is that if your organization doesn't use trunk-based development, it requires some effort to, uh, to figure out how to do it. And uh, the, the biggest adjustment. So it, it, it's more of a dev processing, but you need to figure out, okay, we, we are going to have a slightly different way to create the way we cut releases. And CI has to be recognized slightly differently. And all of those things are the real cost. It all can be figured out, but for some companies that have like, well-established dev cultures, it can take many months to figure it out well. So the people are able to contribute effectively, right? They adjust it. The CI works in the way people expect and things like that. That is the biggest cost. So if you're already doing trunk-based development and you're already on top of it and your CI already kind of halfway there, it's relatively straightforward, the adjustment from the, mon- uh, from the poly repo setup to the monorepo one. But if you're doing something else, if you just naively go into the monorepo and just have a very naive CI, well, you're not going to benefit very much. 
and you're only going to incur the costs, right? Now we have this extra tool you need to be aware of. Suddenly integrating your branches back is kind of pain. And if you look at Google, for example, or Facebook and, or whatever, right? All of them do trunk-based development of one way or the other, where you integrate back, you heavily use feature toggles because, you know, you are at hat. So the library depends on can change. So you might as well integrate back to make sure that it's still, you know, in, in a good shape that your app still works. So if one of our listeners cool. wants to, to do it the right way, what are the steps to do that? I don't think there is a, like one right way, but the way we tend to see folks doing it, there are two scenarios I personally encounter. One is, okay, we have a greenfield effort, right? We all, it's usually a room of full of architects. They're like, okay, this time we're going to do it correctly. <laughs> and it, it always yeah, it reminds like me every like, month. like, yeah, it's like uh, the USSR style of like, we are going to figure it out. It's like it all falls apart. You well, know, the Chernobyl, no? <laughs> yeah. So, but it, it can be done. It, it can be done well, right? So, uh, like, I'm not saying that it, it falls every time, but the hope is always very strong, right? And then the reality hits you in the face, and you kind of get halfway there. And it, the halfway there is still very good, but you sort of you have to face the reality at times. That's one situation. A lot of our clients do that, and we try to make sure that they, you know, as close as possible to what we think is good, and they've arrive at something so they don't architect for years so that in a few months they actually you know push code to production from the triple which is the most important thing you don't want to be architecting in a in a silence and like it okay it dies there right and the second thing is when folks have a giant app it's like we have millions of lines of code in angular js we're thinking say rewriting stuff in angular and we would like to use the monorepo stuff so how do we do it do we just throw the giant piece of code into the repo and that's it or so those are two main starting point, right? And the approach would be different. And the first one, you need to lay out uh, what you think the monorepo should look like, right? Because the tooling itself, regardless of which tooling you choose, Bazel, you know, Buck, or an X tooling we provide, it's relatively straightforward. Some tools are much more than others, but still you can figure it out. It's more about, okay, now we have this giant repo. So how do we structure it, All right? Where everything lives? What is the, like, how do we name things? How we denote scope? How we denote ownership? Who owns what, right? All of those questions aren't really tooling-specific, right? The answer for them, by and large, should be the same whether they use an X or Bazel. It's more about, like, dev culture, right? Figuring out what is the setup that is meaningful, where tooling like GitHub can support it well, where, like, your editors can support it well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Agreeing on that is the most important thing. So we have, uh, if someone is curious, we have two books, one for Angular and one for React for an X, depending on, you know, the preference you have. Get the one that you like the most, and we talk about this type of stuff a lot, right? Where we talk about, like, now, once you've learned the tool, which is the easy part, and you have the hundreds of developers that need to contribute to the same place, how you name things, like, what is a good way for you to think about the repo, what is shared, what kinds of shared do you have? Things like that. Often a bit org-specific, but surprisingly, a lot of it is somewhat universal. Like, for example, the folder structure is very good for denoting ownership. Because most of the tools in the world allow you to de- define ownership on per folder structure, saying like this folder is owned by our team. And so ownership or scope, right, is defined by, is defined by folders. Things like types of things are usually better defined by names. You're saying, oh, if I just add a prefix to a, like, to a package or like a suffix, I can easily see what it is, right, when I scan through the repo, right? So things like that are universal. And then other things come up. If you build backend and frontend in the same repo, well, then you need to denote what's what and what can be shared and stuff like that. Awesome. And I'm curious, what, what, what made you like build your own tool instead of like using something that is there, like what makes NX special in that way that you right. had to do it? It's a valid question. There are a couple of things. The first one is 
I think the main reason is the other tools we have on the market. So there is either Learner, which is a fantastic, robust, like, you know, it works in the, in the open, right? But it does a very small thing, which works well for open source projects. If you're building, like, a, say, if you're working on Bubble or on projects like uh, Annex itself, right, you can use Learner because that's a fantastic uh, tool for that. We have 10 packages built by one team. All the packages are the same. The NPM modules, push to NPM, that you want to develop you know, together and release at the same time. So Learner does it perfectly. No reason to introduce anything to solve that. We were after helping folks build applications. So in those repos, you have applications. Uh, you have different types of libraries. You have backend. You have end-to-end test projects. Like lots of different types of things, right? They are usually developed by different teams and uh, lots of other things that, that Learner is not a very good fit for. And so the closer fit would be something like Bazel, which is a the Google tool uh, tool. Uh, developed at Google. Uh, the issue is, I love Bezo. We're actually working with the Bezo team and we hope to marry Bezo and Annex soon. We're supporting Bezo as a backend for Annex, right? So, so Annex doesn't cover everything that Bezo covers. Like they're not the same. They're not the same in the sense that Annex does more on one side, substantially more. Like Annex is a CLI. It allows to generate stuff and run tasks or whatever. Bezo doesn't do the, this part, right? Bezo is a task coordinator or task orchestrator. So next does task orchestration as well, but Bezu does it differently, right? Which uh, in principle can, uh, essentially, if you look at the task orchestration, I don't want to go too much into, you know, into details, but essentially there are two parts you care about, which is you need to figure out what can be affected by a change so you can run those things in parallel or whatever. And the second part, you can use cache. So next doesn't do any caching. It just figures out what's affected. So if I run the same affected thing 10 times in a row, it will run it 10 times in a row, which for most repos, it's, it's reasonable. It's not too slow. It ends up being... Fine, right? Uh, the Bezo does uh, a bit more in there, so it actually does the caching. And in this case, and if you don't change anything, it, it won't rerun it. The repercur- the downside of, of that is that the tools you use have to... So Annex doesn't care what you run, essentially, because we don't have the caching mechanism in place, right? So you can u- use whatever test runner, whatever build tool you, you want, right? It doesn't matter. Right. Uh, that's why we can easily... We integrate easily Cypress, Jest, Next, Nest, Angular, React, whatever. It all works very easily because it, we make very few assumptions about the tool you use. We just enable certain things for you, right? Orchestration and code reuse, but that's it. Bazel provides the caching, but it makes a lot more assumptions about what your tool must adhere to. So if your tool happens to be the tool that you have a Bazel rule for that works well, fantastic, kumbaya, right? If you have something like Jest, okay, it doesn't work with Bazel. It doesn't adhere to the rules, you know, Bazel requires. Something like Cypress, again, doesn't adhere to the rules, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a much smaller pool of tools that adhere to that strict set of requirements. But if you happen to have it, that's great. Right, because then, you, like in, in principle, your, your build can be faster. That's reason number one, that we wanted to support all the tools in the world freely. So if you like Jest, and I actually think Jest is a fantastic test run, I use it for all my Angular projects, it works. I don't want to be like, okay, now I have to choose between Karma and Jest, and Karma is basic, or, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The second reason is most of our clients, most of enterprise in general, are on Windows. Whether we like it, or, I actually switched to Windows uh, for that reason. So I want to be close to the people. So I will be the man of the people, right? Nice. And, uh, yeah. uh, you go, and, guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I love, actually love Windows now. With WSL too, it's fantastic. But anyhow, so most of clients are on Windows and they don't use WSL. They actually use Windows Windows to develop. Rough. And it kind of works on Windows Windows, but not really because it requires Simlink support. If you look at basic integration right. of Windows, they like monkey patch FS, for example, right? <laughs> to pretend that, that things like that, that... 
a bit scary. So like it again limits the, the number of tools you can use. Your tool has to be monkey patched to work on Windows and Basic, right? And uh, it is a bit too constraining because essentially the way I think about it is like, is like this, that if you look at all the projects in the world, all the repos, 90% of them are so small, you don't need any optimization. You can build it on one node or rebuild everything every single time. It's fast enough, it's fine. Then from the rest, there is like 9.5% or maybe 9.9% that you can make really fast, as uh, like in, in our cases with distributed CI, you can run CI in seven minutes without caching. Mm-hmm. You just, it, it works, it's fine, right? But you, you have total freedom of the tools you use. And then there is this 0.1% of super large repos, like Google-style repos, where you kind of have to commit to a lot of constraints to be able to manage it well, right? And I think none of our clients right now are in that 0.1%. All of them are in 99 where... It's sizable, but if you allow to run your CI in 10 nodes instead of a single node, suddenly it's actually fast enough. So we're not talking about uh, like tens of thousands of projects in the same repo. We're talking about a few hundred projects. And there is a big difference from what you need to do to make that fast compared to that fast. So uh, we hope to marry Bayesville in the next soon, right? We talk to the Bayesville team to make sure, you know, it works because it's one of our priorities for this year. But the reason why we didn't go originally is that not every person, not every company is going to commit to essentially Windows problematic support. It's getting better, but it's still not really working, right? And things like, okay, now you cannot use Cypress or Jest or whatever. You need to figure it out. Maybe monkey patch all those things. Why, is, uh, why is it important for you to marry those two together? Because some of our clients would like to use Basil, right? They are willing to accept those constraints, right? And uh, basically, they're a bus too. So it would be, I basically, for that 0.1%. So I want to cover that 10%. Because 90% are so small, I don't care about them. They don't need us, right? We're talking about the 10%. The 10%, we cover right now this 9, 9.5% of the 10, or like 9.9. You know, it, it, it's, it's all hand right? But How did you do? Yeah, the statistics. Anyway. No, no, it's it, it, it all hand-weighted stuff. I think in reality, it's not even 99 and 1. It's probably like 95 4.99, and then there is this, like, basically 20 companies in the world that right now have re- repos of that size. <laughs> okay, so, so you're just and, making it possible for them to use Bazel. You're not saying you have to use Bazel. Yeah, exactly, because more, like, I think that the majority of people, that could be quite an adjustment. So, like, you actually need to sacrifice quite a lot to gain all the great things that Bazel right. gives you. And Bazel is a fantastic tool. It gives you a lot of great things. But you need to sacrifice quite, quite, quite a lot, right? It's a different tool chain entirely. The build files are written in this dialect of Python. It barely works on Windows. A lot of the tools you would want to use won't work out of the box. So you need to figure out how to write tools for them such that they're able to work. If you have like uh, 50 projects in your organization or like in your department, you don't need that. Like 50 projects is, is small. You can make it work without that. Yeah, so maybe you need to pick something that doesn't require all these sacrifices. Hey, Are you working on a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full-stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. So Annex is perfect or is it uh, still like not 
there's stuff. It, it is close. Right? It's asymptotically approaching perfection, you know. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not perfect. So it, it, the base will be perfection. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So basically, let me first give a, a like a quick intro in what an access. An access is a monorepo. A set of tools for monorepos. Okay, it's generic. So I I call it VS Code. Before I called Webpack of monorepo tools. Now I throw another the comparison. It's a VS Code of monorepo tools. In that by itself, like a naked VS Code doesn't do very much. It does a little bit, but it's not so. You need like a few extensions to make it legit. And next is the same. Like a naked and X doesn't know how to build anything. It can just manage code abstractly. It provides a few affordances, but that's it. So you need to say, I want to add Angular support to it or NAS support, or NAC support, or React support, or whatever, right? And then it knows how to build those things, or like Cypress or whatever. By itself, it's like a foundation, and you put plugins in there to make it do what you want it to do. So it's sort of pluggable and easy to use, hence the VS Code of Monorepo tools. It's inspired, inspired but basic, but it uses a, like a, a different way to do some of the same things. So some of the dev experience-wise, if you interact with it, will be similar. I think that... Uh, a little bit easier to use. And the reason for that is if you are developing a dev tool for Google engineers, you can just say, you're going to use this dev tool. So get like learning basic. And people have no choice but not to learn. So you still have a fantastic dev tool, but the ramp up can be, you know, it, it, it requires some learning, okay? As an open source tool, you don't have this privilege. As an open source tool, if it cannot be learned in 20 seconds, you are out, okay? So, so, <laughs> so it is true. It, it's, a, it's unfortunate, that's but it true, is true, right? True. We had to... Like, this is my main, like, thing that I'm thinking about. How can it be such that even if I'm half asleep after getting, like, doing a red light to, like, Tokyo, <laughs> right, I can still create a new workspace, right, and make it work very fast, right? I have a slogan for you. NX, uh-huh. putting the DX in monorepos. Oh, oh, my God, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That is very good. Yeah, that is very good. <laughs> so, uh, I don't get it. Developer experience. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I do care about developer experience, right? The messages should be uh, like, uh, the error messages should be good. If you have a, like an error, it usually points to, to the guide you can click on, the, you know, videos we create, you know, the interactive tutorials, things like that. We put way more effort in than uh, we would have if it was a, a private, like an internal tool. Because internal, you can just say, this is the guide, talk to someone who knows that that's it. No, Victor, he'll take yeah. care. Yeah, and he got <laughs> fired by the time you got to it. So it's not perfect in that we mainly, like the basic support is one of the things we want to make uh, work. We had some experiments before, but this year it's like we, we have to make it work. Uh, distributed TI is coming soon and that's a big deal that we have to build manually for a lot of folks and we're just tired of it. So if we have a thing that just does it, we're great, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have to do it. So there are a few things. And support for storybook and you know, for design systems. Because design systems, everyone likes design systems. And uh, Annex allows you to build them well, but it still requires a little bit of uh, like manual winding up. And I want it to be like, boom, you know, yeah, yeah, appears, yeah. right? Cool. And a few other things. But that's sort of the, what can bring it to perfection a bit closer. So is, is it free like VS Code or is there a cost associated with it? Oh, yeah, it's free. It's free and open source. And uh and I want to, like, you don't have to talk to me ever, right? If you don't like me, that's okay, right? You can and use an like ex. Get... No, not you in particular. <laughs> if you as someone, right, uh, <laughs> want to explore Monaripus, but you really don't want to talk to Narwhal folks, that's fine. Not everyone who contributes to Next is Narwhal, right? It's an open source project. It's yep. just like a few core people happen to be from, uh, from Narwhal. And get the books. The books for Next are free as well. To get the book, get the courses, watch it, use it. It's free and open source as any other tool. We don't make money by selling an X. We make money by helping 
large organizations just develop software and they happen to use NX often, right? So there are no strings attached kind of situation. Where would I go to find us, you know, get these course videos and to learn more about NX? Okay, cool. So if you go to NX.dev, that's the site where you can watch a 10-minute video that hopefully, because hand-wavy doesn't, you know, it sounds okay, but it's maybe not as impressive, but the 10-minute video is a lot more concrete. You're like, okay, it actually looks pretty easy, right? That's the most important thing. So the 10-minute video, you know, you can get more videos in there. Like there are docs and tutorials in that place as well. You find links to books from that, from an to death as well. That's basically the source. So we have an existing course, which is pretty good, but it's a bit, a bit old. So a new one is coming out in the next two weeks, I think. So by mid-September, you should have the new course, which covers all the latest and greatest stuff, including the things like, okay, now you know Onyx, and Onyx is straightforward, but you need to know how to build a large repo in your organization. Like, what do you do then, right? So a bit more sort of uh, organization-oriented stuff as well. As well. Like, like the stuff in the book that you mentioned? That yeah, yeah exactly. Like yep. how to organize the yep. naming Yeah, but a bit more interactively, right? So if you, if you yes. learn better by watching instead of reading and uh, you can you know you can do that as well oh, video awesome. is dead video is dead <laughs> no, it's no, only no. sound now <laughs> i actually bought a uh, going back to sound i bought, bought a vinyl record player just arrived today so i'm going back to like this computer stuff i'm oh, going to like you're doing vinyl nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's records now nice so we're reaching the end of the episode but while we have you here i have a few more questions but I feel like if I was a listener to this episode, I would like to know, okay, I heard about the benefits of monorepos. Cool. I know where to to learn about it. But practically, like when I start like using NX, what does it give me? So I know it already. So I know about like, you know, splitting things into libraries and to, you know, and the workspaces. But do you have like a two minute just like, you know, like the, let's call it actionable things that people might expect by, yeah. you know, Sounds using good. Yeah. So the first thing has nothing to do with monorepos. And uh, like, we really believe in giving you uh, modern tools. And I put it on quote, because what, what is modern? But the tools, I think, that rock. And I think the tools that rock are like Jess and Cypress, for example. I really like Cypress in particular. is like, I'm like... So great. It's like crack. Once you try it, happens, you just have to like keep writing tests, or you know. Like, For the record, we're not promoting crack. Okay. Yeah, let's just yeah. can we go ahead and promote it. No, no, no. Don't edit it. Leave it in. But we're just like we don't we definitely not promoting crack. Like, unless yes. it's the way to hack on like old games when you use cracks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it, I meant the old games, right? I meant the crack. Yeah, old yeah, games, yeah. yeah okay. Things like that just work for you out of the box. You can still use Karma and Protractor if you want to, but if you don't say anything, it will set up Cypress and just for you. And I think that thing alone for many people worth it because setting up Cypress, you know, uh, it's not super hard, right? But it's an effort for some folks. And to do it such that you know, debugging works, source maps work, watching works, TypeScript works exactly right. So you can share a code between your tests and your app. Right? That's the tricky part. What if some constants I want to share? Things like that, right? Uh, are not trivial, right? So that's the first thing, right? That you get. The modern tools, they're not necessarily more modern than others, but the tools I think worth exploring, right? Cypress and Jest and stuff like that. The second part is that you can build backend and front in the same place. So put an API next to your Angular app. Boom, you have a full stack app. Many APIs. You have, you know, talk to many APIs. It's fine, right? And again, not impossible to do yourself, but it's an effort. 
what to start sharing code and stuff together. Right? So that's the second thing where you, like, you get Cypress right away, like, oh, that's great. Let me create an API. I'm like, oh, it's so easy, right? And then the last part is the more repo part where once you start sharing code when you front end the API, then when you get it, right? You're like, oh, I see. So now I have these two separate apps built with different stacks, right? And I can share this, like, I mean, a TypeScript interface or whatever, a validator between them with like no setup, right? It takes five seconds to, to do that. And then you see, okay, now because I have that, I, I like you sort of get the power, right? But that's the progression that I see folks going through. They're like, oh, I have Cypress. That's awesome. And other things like ESLint or whatever, right? And Jest and, and Prettier or whatever. And then like, okay, now I need to get an API in there. Like, well, okay, that's pretty cool. And then the code sharing kicks in and you see that that's, uh, even if you don't go full partition your app into lots of packages or whatever, just sharing a few packages here and there can be a big deal, right? Because publishing something to an artifact and going through, that's hard stuff, mm-hmm. right? It, 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 as a lot of effort, it requires lots of approvals from most companies. So that's the progression. Cool, thanks. So while we have you here, I'm just curious because, you know, you hear all the time you hear about like, uh, you know, trends in front-end development world, you know, like right. what's hot, what's not, what's going down in trend, what, what what's going up and all that stuff. And I'm curious about your, your experience. So you have a, a consulting company and you mainly were fo- uh, focusing around the uh, Angular in order that mm-hmm. you started also with uh, uh, writing about React and, and publishing stuff about that. And I'm curious from your perspective and try not to be biased because, you know, because yeah. it's yeah, Angular team. But right. how do you see like trend-wise, like Angular? How how is it doing? You know, yeah, not, not well, regarding like GitHub stars, but actual yeah. demand. Yeah, know. I think it's important to differentiate GitHub stars from the actual usage, right? Because if you look at most large companies using building software, right? A, same as npm downloads. Most large companies are behind like a uh, an artifactory, right? They never hit npm, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't actually see any of the downloads there. So you can have a a very successful project that's used by all 4,500 with a relatively small number of NPM downloads because they don't hit NPM. They're not allowed to, okay? Yeah. And most of the developers could do it. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of developers. May not go and start stuff because they just, you know, they focus on, you know, like building bank stuff, right? Like building real like, like giant shipping app. An app. <laughs> yeah, exactly, shipping an app. So the heap stuff, I, I was always very critical about even when I look at the history stuff, when, uh, when I was, uh, I used to be a Ruby on Rails developer and a Java developer before that. And uh, not a Ruby, I, like I, use, I don't like to say I'm a Ruby, de- like I used to use Ruby on Rails, among other things, right? And it was a big thing where like, oh, Rails is here and Java is dead, right? And like everyone was like celebrating the death of Java. So what happened now? Java is still around. Just as strong as it always been. Oh, it's, oh yeah. yeah. Didn't go away anyway. It's still like number one, number two. Rails is legacy. Okay, by and large, like most rail shops change, like there are a few shops that are still around, but it way, like, went way down. It just shows that you cannot really rely on trends because what's hip is not what is being actually used. So that's why I'm always skeptical when people talk about, oh, look at the stars or whatever, or all the events that happen in, in this particular field. I think it's it, clearly an indicator of something, but it's not an indicator of longevity. For me, the indicator of longevity is do companies building real apps actually use your stuff? Right, and that's why Java is around, right? Because all large companies use Java to build middleware or backups. That's it. Every single client we have, not every single, eighty percent use Java, twenty percent use .NET. Right? That's basically it. There are some like a small service in Go over here written by like an enthusiast, right? But that's basically it. So, <laughs> and I think that's where the longevity is because those companies aren't going away. If they have their stuff written in your technology, 
they are going to keep investing, making it faster and better because they need to maintain it for like decades. So given that, I think Angular is the king of enterprise uh, from the front of technologies. And React is there as well, right? But uh, I think Angular is everywhere in enterprise, the way we see it, at least. Uh, and I can have some sort of selection bias, obviously, right? I'm not fearing it disappearing anytime soon or like getting like smaller or whatever. Because at the end of the day, a uh, like, company is building large apps is what matters, uh, you know, for longevity. Because those apps will be, have to be, will be there, right? They're not going to go anywhere. No one's going to rewrite them. It will be like some of them are so huge. It's, they may not be in principle rewritable, right? It takes years even to uh, like build something similar, right? So it, it's going to be there for, for a long time. So I'm, I'm not too worried. Demand for Angular is high. Like we, we definitely see it growing, right? The Angular 2 was a blip, right? <laughs> it was kind of, uh, we had something, it took longer than needed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was, I, I worried around Angular 2 time because then it's like, okay, we, it's not been shipped yet. The companies are asking questions. But now I think we, we've seen that the Angular team is great at evolving the platform without breaking forks, right? And shipping new features, making things faster and more toolable or whatever without yeah. disrupting the whole thing. So like, I, I think that the Angular team, and I was actually, I was part of the team at, at that point. I was the one who was breaking stuff. So it's my fault. But I think the Angular team- Shame on you. Like redeemed themselves. They show that they can be very stable and really yeah. caring about the stability of everyone, right? To the degree where sometimes I wish they were slightly less stable, right? <laughs> to move things a bit faster, right? But I think that's actually the good thing. Like being that stable means that by and large, you can move an app from one version of Angular to another one with yeah. a relatively minimum effort, right? It depends on the app and stuff, but you can do it without it being like a, you know, it's like a task force yeah. thing where like two teams are working for a month or whatever. Right? What I like about what you said is that, okay, there's longevity, but now that it reached somewhat of a stabler, let's say, right. uh, version, although everybody is waiting, waiting for Ivy to kick in. So now it's optimization, right? It's right. like, okay, focusing on making sure that it's not just something that people are stuck with for the next 20 years, but it's something yep. that developer experience there is very good at large scale. And that's the focus from now on, which, yep. which will make it like uh, the dominant force uh, in like enterprise and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. And I think that the comparison to Java and people like to hate on Java, but Java is actually a fantastically managed stack where like Java, the first couple of releases, super slow and usable, right? And now it's like, it's bl- for a lot of domains, not all domains, but for a lot of domains, it is the best choice, right? If, if I were to choose, what would you build middleware and or like backend? I would prefer like Kotlin or the Java thing over, over JavaScript because uh, it's like the VMs are fantastic. They kept it. Uh, you can still run that code written 15 years ago right now, right? But it will be incomparably faster. Nice. Okay. And uh, so th- thanks, first of all. And the second question was about, I know that part of the stack that you chose quite early on uh, was to integrate uh, NGRX and recommend it as the pattern for enterprise. And we had a, an episode uh, on this podcast about NGRX and we talked about like at the start, it wasn't really um, like, let's say proven or like tested in large scale apps. It was right. even Redux wasn't like that. Even uh, Dan Abramov said like, it hasn't been tested yet, so don't jump, go ahead and like, you know, implement it in large scale because it might not work for you or something like that. So, and you started recommending it pretty early, I think. And what I thought, what I thought is that it's a good thing because like the best thing that I love about NGRX or even Redux is that 
there is a pattern, a certain way to do stuff, like a, right. like an order, which is great. There's uh, I have, uh, like you know there are other stuff maybe more I don't know boilerplate right and all that stuff that are maybe the downsides, but there is an order, okay? And so I'm curious about, first of all, what made you take the decision? Like, was it because you implemented it in server large-scale project and then you decide to recommend it? And second, like now, looking back on the last few years, did it prove itself like to be this like, you know, stable choice of like large-scale enterprise apps using DAX. So curious right. about those two aspects. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. I started to come in quite early on for a couple of reasons. One of them is I used to do middleware development with like messaging, message-based architectures, you know, event sourcing. And then Jurex, even though it's not exactly like that, right? it's reminiscent. So some of the trade-offs you see are similar, right? So if you buy into it, you get some of the advantages you get from, from, from that system as well. And so like that. The second thing I liked about it is that it allows you for like a very database-oriented mindset where you have a store, which is like a database, and you have selectors, which are like a view, you know, kind of like tables you create from the store, right? And I, and I like this database-oriented mindset. I think for if you look at like a giant backend app, you can have super complex domain. Maybe you want to build a very rich object-oriented model there to do some things. That might be true. I, I say that's probably the case. And, you know, I support that, right? On the front end, for many front, the complexity is not in that. It's not the domain mode that is overly complex on the front end most of the time. It's like consuming an effective way and managing user interactions. So I find that being able to think of it as a database gives me a lot of guarantees, but some of the costs that would incur on the back end, for example, if you have like a 10 million line system uh, where I like, just talk to the database, right? And there, right? So I found the trade-off to be well worth it, right? I like it for that. I think because of that it scales, that you have a, a managed way to to organize your data, right? To make changes carefully, to make sure invariants hold and things like that. The boilerplate stuff, it's everyone's favorite topic to, like I know, like Brendan and Wes, Jerry's uh, core folks uh, at Narrow right now, right? They join Narrow. And they always like a boilerplate, right? Because everyone likes to talk about boilerplate. And there is some of it, right? Sure. But that is true about any explicit system. Any uh, decoupled system explicitly configured will have some boilerplate, quote unquote, because you need to, uh, because the couple system, you need to make sure you organize the, you know, how they interact, how different parts talk to each other. That yeah. organization is what people usually refer to as boilerplate when it comes to NGRX. And that's the trade-off you buy into it. If you decouple things, you need to make sure you orchestrate the decoupled pieces. The orchestration has to be put in place. You either do it implicitly or explicitly. I prefer for large projects in particular, the explicit one, because then at least I can step through stuff. So I think it was well worth it. Um, I would say... I don't know what percentage of our clients use it, maybe like 70%, but uh, like a substantial uh, amount, a number of our clients use NGRX in, in one way or the other. I would say it's one of the two main choices right now that I see. It's either this or people try to use Apollo in some fashion, either by itself or in combination with NGRX. And depending on your organization, the, 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 you know, the exact requirements, one choice may be better than the other. But I think for the, like a variety of projects, it's definitely worth it. And I agree with you about a way of doing things, right? It works quite well. It may not be the suboptimal thing for your exact team at that very moment, but everyone else at your organization does it. So you can, when you move about the, the repo, you can see the code being written in the same fashion. You can understand how state management is done because it's done similarly. And there is a big advantage in that, especially once you merge with the monorepo thing, because then you're forced to, not forced to, but you tend to go through different projects more to, to see what's happened to maybe reuse some stuff. So having some convention saying, this is just the way we do it. 
It's pretty great most of the time. Uh, that's much better than most other things can say. So like, let's just use it. There is good tooling, plays good docs. It's well-maintained. So I, I, I really like it for that reason. I feel like, like, the, like state management is one of those things that uh, I think the Angular solved lots of the problems like routing and all the like, you know, pieces right. in the puzzle, except for state management. Also, React it suggested Flux, but didn't like implement it. Everyone like maybe uh, deviated from this topic because it's a hard topic, a hard yeah. problem to yep. solve. And I feel like the next few years we'll see like a bloom in uh, like solutions for maybe more people will start focus on that because I feel this is like the largest problem we're facing now. There's not, like you said, there's not enough tools that can actually say they have a certain way to do stuff, which is like the most important way. Like, how do you do routing? You do it in a certain way. Like, how do you do like HTTP calls? I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. And one thing that's worth pointing out is things like in GRX, because they have a database-like uh, system, what things become available like uh, SSR and uh, like hydration become a real option, right? Because you can just <clears throat> hydrate your server stuff, right? I think that's the direction we are going in, right? Uh, lots of people want, for at least a variety of, uh, for uh, like a, sm- a quite sizable percentage of projects, they want to be able to pre-render some part of it, right? And rehydrate the other parts. I mean, it can be, you know, done even easier maybe with store, but it is possible in Jurex in a relatively straightforward way, right? So I think that whatever solution you come up with has to solve this problem because you need to be able to say, well, I'm going to render the app on the server, but then on the client, it needs to kick in with some state in place. And it's very hard to do it without having centralized state, right? Because if you have every component holding like a field, it's challenging, right? Not impossible, but it's a lot more challenging. Whereas with things like NGRX or Apollo or Redux or whatever, it's different. Lots of technologies. You can just say, this is a store. This is the whole thing for the store. Boom, right? And your app appears working without having to make any requests to the server. My prediction for... uh from, I don't know, 2015, when I, t- I talked with Rob Warmo, the 2016 it was, that will somehow make it as like a connected, separate like classes, but connected somehow to, for you to be able to create this whole store, but you won't be tied to one single global object. But I don't know, like just the theory, but uh, right. we'll see. Yeah. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well-known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well-known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out My JavaScript Story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. Okay, so let's go over uh, and do some picks. Let's start. uh, Jennifer, do you have some picks? My pick is fall. The season because it's starting to get fallish here. It's lovely. That's my vibe. Oi. Oi. We didn't hear. Uh, oh, wait, shit. Never oi. mind. I had, yeah, oi. My other pick is NGD because it was such a good cough. 
Did you lose your laptop? No, I did not. But like, I had literally picked my laptop up from that area five minutes before. Like, I was sitting right next to them. Horrible. Horrible. Anyone who didn't know, like, people got their laptop stolen. And it was the first time I ever heard about... uh, this type of thing happening in a tech conference. So it's like a bunch of people too, right? Yeah. It was, it was a very targeted attack. It wasn't something like that the conference organizers were like lax on security about or anything. This was somebody who bought a badge with the intent of stealing laptops at the first opportunity they saw. Wow. They stole just like everybody who had a backpack in the area, they left the backpack and just ripped the laptops and took off and just were gone before anybody knew what happened. So we know what their pick was. But uh, our, your third pick for today is like, keep your laptop safe. Close. Conferences. Yeah, yeah that stinks. I mean, I always leave it out. Always. Not even just like in my backpack, but I'm talking like open and sitting there on the table because I'm so trusting. Yeah. This makes entered, me sad. I, just, I don't era. want that to be the only thing people talk about about this conference for, which is like why I haven't really mentioned it at all is because it was such a good conference. It was so inviting. The community was so welcome. They did such a good job. So That's I don't want anything they get remembered for is getting right. hit Oh, I will be there next year. I won't bring Woo. my laptop, but I will be there. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. Be. The computer won't. <laughs> from your iPhone. <laughs> Okay, uh, thanks. Elisa, do you have picks? I just have a, a, a warning as a pick. Keep your laptop closed. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, decaf coffee on average has about seven milligrams of caffeine. Um, and then it kind of goes up from there with like tea has like 42. Uh, regular mm-hmm. coffee has almost 100. And my warning is that for those who might have no clue about this nitro cold brew has 280 so if you're pounding pounding those puppies down you might regret it i didn't do that this is just you know a random hypothetical yeah Yeah. so that is that is my delicious warning to all of you (laughs) wow thanks brian yeah, sure. I got uh, two picks. First is I put it in the show notes uh, so you can check it out is a website. So if you haven't heard about trunk-based development and some of the stuff that Victor was kind of talking about, there's a pretty accessible website that kind of goes over some of the concepts of trunk-based development and how it works and breaks down the concepts uh, for you. And it's, it's actually a very simple URL. It's trunkbaseddevelopment.com. And I'm in no way associated with it. I've just been referred to it in the past and thought I would share that with everybody. And then I guess I have a kind of a shameless plug. I just finished writing a report with Lucas uh, Rubelke out of Phoenix, and we wrote a report for Lucas. O'Reilly. Yeah, Lucas is awesome. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well. And so the name of the report is Why Angular for Enterprise Development. And so for any of those that are those listeners that are kind of interested in like why you might choose Angular for Enterprise Development, we kind of break it down and, and go over some of the reasons why you might choose Angular. Like music to Victor's ears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Victor, do you have some picks for us? Uh, sure, uh, I'll give two. One is a real pick, another one is a, uh, not a rant, more like a, a, like a more abstract pick, right? The real pick was the show The Boys on uh, Amazon Prime, which is about, like, it's a superhero show, and I don't like superheroes. I'm like the last person to be interested in superheroes, because I just find it like, I'm so tired of it at this point. But it's very good. So I highly recommend it. It's gory. If you like like gory, funny stuff, I was like amazed. I was like, oh my God, it was so good. 
the other pick is not a pick, more like a rant is I've been doing this thing after reading a book, Digital Minimalism by Carol Newport, I think. I've been trying to use technology less. So, and I recommend everyone to do a month Facebook less, like without Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And all of them? Without all of them, right? Just like, or at least use them very strategically. For example, I still use Twitter, but I had to like unlock a bunch of things and like check it in, tweet them, (laughs) unlock a bunch of things, right? So it's like, it's very hard to like occasionally use it, right? And it creates a much, like a substantial improvement. It creates a substantial improvement in my quality of life. Every time I use any of those tools, I feel unhappy uh, because uh, they just suck my humanity. Now, like I can just sit in quiet, like quietly in a room by myself with my dog and just stare at things. <laughs> and, <laughs> I love it. And, he, and he's oh, checking oh. his Instagram while you're sitting. You're not going to do what I'm going to. Genuine. Many people don't like. Oh, it doesn't really matter or whatever. Oh, like I don't. I'm not really addicted. It was like no. Like I know I'm addicted because. If I don't have a blocker installed, I just like, I do programming once and like, and then in a few minutes, like, oh my God, I'm watching some tech stuff on YouTube again. It's like, what is this? Closet, right? Without <laughs> even knowing. It happens without even knowing. I'm like in the middle of some stupid video about board games, right? And I just like halfway through it. Like I've been watching it for 10 minutes. So you I actually know. installed blockers like to... Yeah, without blockers, it just doesn't work. Seriously, if you want to try it, install some blocker. I use Freedom because it like blocks for reals. And it, it works such that you cannot disable the blocker until it's 11 p.m. So you have to wait till late at night. Oh, that's so cool. I've heard of this. Yeah, it's called a Freedom app. And my okay. phone, I have an iPhone. It's locked as well. And only my wife knows the code. So if I want to watch YouTube, no I need to the code. So <laughs> that, because only then, everything else you have, you have a commitment or whatever, you don't. Because we're weak as human beings. If you're addicted to, so, like, a social Going media... Going down the related rabbit hole, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. like, a seriously, uh, install a blocker and give it a month. And then, oh, my God, the quality of life. You'll feel much calmer. Suddenly, you'll feel the joy is back. But do you find it hard to, like, get back, like, for instance, like, to use Twitter again? Because when I take a break from Twitter, I find it hard to, like, yeah, start you're, you're using it again. Twitter is a cesspool that leads to like a, a dark place. Okay, that's what it is. Right? So, I love it. Almost nothing good on Twitter. There is like, <laughs> almost nothing. I love that you use that. It might be something, but the ninety-one percent. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, by and large, it's either poorly phrased opinions or links to articles I can find anyhow. So uh, I personally try to avoid it at any. I basically treat it as the right one. I write to Twitter, but never read it. How should our readers contact you? Should they DM you on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, so I, I use that as well. Once in a while, I check if someone messaged me, just in case. But they should uh, text your wife and ask her to unblock But seriously, it's the same as YouTube. Like you start watching, oh, that's an interesting video about like a headphones, and like twenty years after, you're like a, the world most expert in headphones or whatever, right? And it's like, it's not useful knowledge. You don't want to be this, right? Spend time with your family, go for a walk or whatever, you know? Yeah, I agree. If I will do that, I will miss the notion of like trying, wanting to strangle a rabbit after <laughs> I uh, end, uh, end my Twitter session or something like that. Okay, cool. So those were your picks. Okay, cool. Thanks. So I will end with, I have two, uh, two quick picks. One is a website called bit.dev which uh, talking about like monorepos and stuff, they try to present a, a di- maybe a solution from a different perspective, 
by like encapsulating parts of your code as components that you can share between like which repo you want and all that stuff. They, 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 it's kind of a counter, I think, to uh, the monorepo. It's another idea to check out. What I saw, they did a lecture here in Israel at their Israeli company and did a lecture and showed how they add to like open source projects, these cool um, previews and stuff like that, which were super nice. So check, check it out. And my other pick, although it's uh, like, I don't know, an older TV show, I restarted watching True Detective, which is an awesome, awesome show. And I'm sure like everybody in the world already saw that. But I tried to do it, uh, to watch it with uh, with my wife, but she kept like falling asleep after like the second episode. And so my... you're really, really selling it. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's that's my tip. That's my recommendation. Pass the second episode and then magic. <laughs> okay. So true detective. This is my second pick, and I'll put a, a link to the first pick on the show notes and. That's it. I want to say thank you very much to all of the panelists, Jennifer, Lisa, Brian, and a special, special thank you to the one and only, the master teacher, the master enterpriser, Victor Safkin, and the master hugger as well. If you see him in a conference, don't hug him, okay? It's reserved just for me. Okay, awesome. (laughs) Thank you very much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks, Victor. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.